Hello and welcome to episode number 122 of the Draft Analyst, presented by the Believe Sports Podcast Network. Do you believe? I'm your host, Chris Tripodi, and with me, as always, is Tony Pauline. We are smack dab in the middle of the 2020 NFL Scouting Combine from Indianapolis. Two days down and two to go. Tony, how's Indy? Well, you know, it's funny. You wouldn't think that we're smack dab in the middle because as I sit in the press room, which just literally 48 hours ago, there were so many people in here, you were tripping over yourself. It's me and one other guy, and they've stripped down all the media tables. They're starting to dismantle it. If you looked at this, you would think that the combine was over, and we still have all the defensive players to to work out uh, over the next two days. So uh, really... when you've heard me say on this podcast for the two years we've been doing it about how the uh, combine has become more of a media event and a media spectacle uh, than an actual scouting event. Uh, it, I, I sent you a picture an email. If we could post that picture, you could understand what I'm saying because this place is a ghost town uh, and half the combine still left to uh, half the guys still have to work out at the combine. So it's, it, it's a bit strange. Other than that, it's been okay. Uh, it's been cold in India. It's been snowy, but that's cool. Uh, no problem with that, uh, but it is a little weird that it's just me and one other guy in the media center, and they're starting to tear things down. Yeah, that photo Tony sent me was pretty, I mean, it looks like the end of an event, which is kind of crazy because even though, listen, a lot of people are more interested in the offensive side of the football than the defensive side of the football, but even still, it doesn't seem like that would cause a mass exodus and say people only come to watch the offensive players or anything like that. I know the senior bowl, we talked about it a lot. You know, people will leave on Wednesday. People will leave early on Thursday before the final practices. So a lot of people don't stay the whole time. They just come and kind of show their face and then report from afar later on. But it's still kind of a strange phenomenon. I do wonder if the defensive players were going first, if there'd be any difference. No, there'd be no difference at all because it's all based on, you know, the interview schedule and the interviews, the podium interviews anyway, as far as the media is concerned, ended yesterday. Uh, that, that was the schedule. It actually started a day earlier this year. It would have been no different, uh, no different at all. What will happen is where I'm at is right near where the bench press takes place. So if you guys see the bench press on NFL Network uh, where the fans are screaming and yelling, that's to my right. And we are taping this on a Saturday about 1230. In about three hours, this place will start to get busy with fans because of the defensive backs will be in here uh, on the bench press. We all know that uh, bench press for defensive backs is real important. But anyway, the fans will be filling the stands here. Uh, but it, it, it would be no different at all. It, it's based on the interview schedule. As far as the media is concerned, uh, there was a mass exodus primarily last night. There was some today. Uh, and I know from years past, I mean, Saturday is usually a pretty busy day at the combine, and it is like a ghost town. It, it wouldn't have mattered if the quarterbacks were throwing on Sunday. Well, the quarterbacks used to actually throw on Sunday. Um, when, the, when the combine ended Tuesday, it, it's just the way the league set it up and the combine set it up for the podium interviews uh, with the players. And now you kind of alluded to this a little bit here, but year over year, the combine tends to be a bit stagnant. But obviously this year, we have a huge change as the NFL switched up the schedule. They moved the workouts to primetime at nights, probably wanted that ratings boost. And they did get the ratings boost they wanted. The ratings, at least for Thursday, went up substantially. It was the most watched first day and the most watched weekday of combine coverage ever. So if that was the goal for the NFL here, they certainly hit their goal. But that's really where the positives end. The move really has not been received well around the league. It's probably great for casual fans who can't follow or watch when they're at work and wouldn't know what's going on when workouts were during the day in the past. But 
it's awful for pretty much everybody else, myself and Tony included. And I'm sure the players, and in this case, the receivers on Thursday and the running backs on Friday, I highly doubt that they appreciated running agility drills hours after they'd normally be eating dinner and when they would probably be getting ready for bed. It's been a disaster, and I've not really seen uh, the outside response because I've been busy breaking stories and getting news. But really from start to finish, from players, through the teams, through the scouts, through the agents, through the trainers who are here, you know, because the training facilities have room to get their guys uh, uh, ready, even through some of the parents, which I'll talk about, it's been an utter and unanimous decision that having the workouts at night have been a disaster. Granted, if the ratings keep uh, climbing, that's the way uh, that's the way it's going to be in the future. Uh, but but to a man and a woman, everyone dislikes it. Number one, I had dinner with Ezra Cleveland last night. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. And Ezra told me that there were a lot of people, a lot of guys in his group and in the offensive line unit who were struggling with strained hamstrings and even pulled hamstrings because of the lateness of the workouts. Uh, what happens is a lot of these guys, and people don't realize this. I mean, I've said it before. I trained for the Olympic decathlon for 11 years. You know, when you go through a rigorous workout like that, you know, you just don't put your stuff on, go back to your room, take a shower and hop in bed. No, you've got to basically continue to stretch afterwards, and you do a little bit, bit of jogging, you get the lactic acid out of you. And when I was having dinner with Cleveland last night, he was complaining about cramping up while he was eating dinner, and this was 9 o'clock at night. I spoke with a uh, – I was actually watching the running back workout with a father of one of the players, one of the prospects who was working out. Now, this is a guy who played college football himself. His son is now on the Tampa Bay team in the XFL, and the son, the running back, is going to be a day three pick. And, and he was saying, you know, how what a disaster it is because you don't do, as you said, those types of agility workouts at 8, 9, 10 o'clock at night and expect to do your best. Uh, you know, the, the gentleman said to me, he's just, you know, you have Monday night football once in a blue moon, but this is not, you know, an everyday occurrence. And, um, as someone else said to me, you know, earlier, we, we talked about, uh, you know, the train, these guys train primarily in the morning and in the afternoon. And so what they did do a few, they did schedule a few night workouts to kind of get their body acclimated. But for the most part, the two months before the combine or when they were at these training facilities, they're starting at 8 o'clock at night, and by 10 o'clock at night, they're supposed to be in bed. Now, they did change that a little bit uh, to try and have some night workouts, but, but still, the bigger issue is, and I found out, like the defensive backs or the running backs yesterday, the running backs were told to get to the convention center at 2 o'clock, yet they didn't take the field until what time was it last night? 8 o'clock at night? So literally for six hours – most of these guys just sat around twiddling their thumbs doing nothing. So that's been a big issue. It's been disastrous, but you know what? If the ratings continue to go up, we're going to see these prime time workouts. Yeah, I mean, this might end up being the new normal and, you know, much to our chagrin and the chagrin of pretty much everybody besides the league and the bottom line. It might just be something that, you know, trainings are then adjusted. As you said, you know, they started doing some of it this year, but it's only going to have to be implemented more and more as the years goes on in order to make sure that these players are physically prepared. But in the end, even training later in the day or at night here and there, it's not great for the body. It's not ideal for peak performance and it's still going to hurt these players. And I wonder a lot of it down the line with results coming in and with 
future participants seeing what's going on here if some players will just say you know what i'm not going to do these agility drills i'm not going to do a lot of these late night drills and then the nfl has no workouts to show in prime time despite the fact that they moved it to prime time so that they could show the workouts i don't know what the actual numbers are but i saw a large number of receivers and running backs who refused to uh run i do know that there are already agents saying that based on what they've seen this year they're not going to let guys next year uh, or their combine invitees next year work out during prime time. A funny side note, I mean, the city of Indianapolis themselves can't be too happy about these night workouts because a place like St. Elmo's Steakhouse, which is well-renowned and famed in Indianapolis, I mean, that place usually uh, during combine week, you can't get through the front door. It's so packed. But, but because, the, uh, because the workouts are at night, because the teams and the scouts are at Lucas Oil Stadium at night and everybody's glued to the TV, you could just walk in and get a table, you know, the past two nights because everyone's watching the workouts or everyone's at the workouts. So I, I'm sure it's even hitting the, the city of Indianapolis in the pocket. Now, besides the change in schedule here for the Combine, really the story of the first two days in Indy has to be the offensive lineman. I mean, we've talked about this being a very strong class at the position, really across the board, but especially the tackles and really the athletic testing that they did on Friday. Back that up, especially at the top. Pretty much every offensive lineman with any semblance of first-round buzz worked out well. Tristan Wirfs had high expectations coming in. He crushed even those around 4'8", 640. His jumps were better than two-thirds of the wide receivers, so just really impressive on his part. Makai Becton ran a 5.11 40-yard dash, fastest ever for a 350-plus pound player, although he did end up tweaking a hamstring. Andrew Thomas, Jedrick Wills, Austin Jackson all enjoyed good workouts. And last but not least, friend of the podcast, Tony mentioned him before, Ezra Cleaver. He had the best three cone at 7.26 seconds, the best short shuttle at 4.66 seconds. Each of those bested the second best participant by over a tenth of a second. The short shuttle, I think, was 0.18 of a second better. He ran a 4.9340, well above average jumps, really opened a lot of eyes, at least among people who were sleeping on him, but that's no longer the case. Tony, who impressed you the most among these potential high offensive line picks? Yeah, and if you listen to this podcast, you've listened to me talk or, or – uh or read any of my writings and you've been sleeping on Ezra Cleveland, it's your own fault because I've been saying for two months now, this guy was going to blow up the combine and that's exactly what he did. You know, Tristan Wars was just incredibly impressive. I expected him to be athletic, but I think some of his numbers were just so far off the charts. No one could have expected that. Uh, he was big. He was uh, explosive. Uh, and now I think there are teams that look at what he did yesterday and say, you know what, we're going to try him at left tackle. And all along, I've felt that he is uh, a guy who can play left tackle at the next level. As I mentioned on Pro Football Network yesterday, Andrew Thomas and Tristan Wirfs are graded by many teams as the number one and number two tackles on their board. We'll get into Jedrick Wills a little bit later on. Uh, Ezra Cleveland, I, I mean, you know, what, what can you say about him? I, I did uh, have dinner with Ezra last night. He was a little bit disappointed in his short shuttle. He was a little bit disappointed in his bench press. Um, but, but again, you know, that was the expectations that I had of Ezra Cleveland. I think he caught a lot of other people by surprise, but, you know, good for him. He's a terrific athlete with a tremendous amount of upside and one of the top three pure left tackles in this year's draft. Now, obviously, don't mind the background noise here. They're all setting up in the media room where Tony is right now. So there's going to be a little noise. Actually, they're not setting up. They're tearing down the media. They're taking everything down. They're dismantling. They're not setting up. Tony is the only person in the media room right now that doesn't work for the convention center. 
that basically. Good way to put it. <laughs> so we'll move past the uh, the first round guys, the early picks here, and look at some later guys, day two guys, interior linemen especially. Cesar Ruiz out of Michigan, a guy we've discussed, worked out very well. Matt Hennessy did as well, the center out of Temple. He also looked good in drills. Matt Pert ran a 5.01 second 40-yard dash. Shane Lemieux actually surprised with a 5.11 second 40. At least to me, that was surprising. Tony, beyond the top guys, who really helped themselves? Well, I, I think, you know, Calvin Throckmorton had a terrible athletic testing workout, but he looked good in drills. And, you know, he's a guy who played tackle at uh, Oregon, did see some time at, uh, at, at center at Oregon, and that's where he's going to be playing the next level center of guard. So I, I think when people look at the testing numbers of uh, Calvin Throckmorton, they're, they're going to basically downgrade him immediately. But uh, his position workout was terrific. I thought John Mulchin, Ezra Cleveland's uh, teammate from Boise State, surprised a lot of people. A lot of people thought he was a sluggish, unathletic guard, uh, ran 5-1-3 in the 40, which I think surprised a lot of people. Other numbers uh, were also pretty good. Uh, 34-inch vertical jump, 26 uh, reps on the bench. You're looking for anything over 25. So I think Mulchin, Ezra Cleveland's teammate, helped himself. Now, it's been mostly good news from the offensive linemen, but there were guys who struggled, at least testing-wise. Tony mentioned Throckmorton as one of them. He's always a small area guy anyway. Trey Adams tested poorly, 5.6 seconds in the 40, in addition to his injury issues. Probably didn't help this case, even though no one's coming in expecting him to blow up the combine. Same thing with Yassir Durant, didn't really impress. But these are some bigger guys or you know small area types like Throckmorton. Were there any players who really didn't meet the expectations in your eyes, Tony, because we know that this is all about not the numbers that you put up, but the numbers that you put up relative to what you play on the field as and what the expectations were coming into the event. Yeah, you said expectations. I think I'll get to Trey Adams in a second, but I think Jake Hansen, who you know was known as more of a smaller, more nimble offensive lineman, runs a 5-5, didn't look very athletic. I think he really, really hurt himself. Uh, Trey Adams is at a point right now where he could actually go undrafted. I mean, he showed no athleticism at all in his testing. We know about his injury history. He looked stiff and he struggled uh, during position drills. So it could be a situation with Trey Adams where uh, he's he's fallen out of the middle rounds. He could fall out of the late rounds. If he does not get good medical reports combined with those terrible testing numbers and really the position workout yesterday, Trey Adams, who literally two years ago, uh, before he got hurt in 2018, entered the 2018 season as the highest-rated player, regardless of position, by NFL scouts, could end up not drafted in the 2020 draft. Now we'll move away from the offensive lineman here and move to a position that the offensive linemen are opening up holes for, and that's the running back, the other guys who worked out on Friday. And it was a great day for Wisconsin's Jonathan Taylor. We knew he was going to run fast. He was a track star in high school but 4.39 seconds in the 40-yard dash, weighed in at 226 pounds. I mean, that's insane. That's some Saquon Barkley-level stuff, and everybody, if you remember a couple years ago, was absolutely salivating over Barkley's combine workout. Taylor also had an excellent three-cone and short shuttle. A.J. Dillon out of Boston College, he's essentially cloned Derrick Henry's combine from 2016. We all know Derrick Henry is an athletic freak, but Dillon beat Henry's vertical by four inches. He jumped 41 inches in the vert. Darrington Evans from App State, guy we've discussed often, ran 4-4-1 in the 40, should end up being a great change of pace back. Cam Akers checked all the athletic boxes he needed to. 
Anthony McFarland, another guy we discussed often, ran a 4-4-4, struggled a bit in the jumps, but did show off that long speed. And Shrine star James Robinson weighed in at 219 pounds, and his jumps were among the best of all running backs. So very explosive and you know showing well there for Robinson. Lots of impressive performances, obviously, Tony. Who stood out to you? I think the guy who surprised the most was A.J. Dillon, not just with his jumps, but a 4-5-3-40. I mean, and he's a guy who looks like he, he's got a limited, if any, burst uh, on the field uh, when he's handed the ball. He's not someone that's going to beat anyone in the daylight. And he showed surprisingly good speed yesterday. Raymond Calais of uh, Louisiana Lafayette, a player that a lot of scouts like, runs a 4-4-2. He was very athletic. I was also relatively impressed with Cam Akers, a guy that I've never really been high on. But again, as you said, I think he beat expectations in just about all areas. That wasn't all good in the backfield. McFarland's teammate at Maryland, Javon Leak, ran 4.65 in the 40. He looks way faster on tape, so that's kind of a head-scratcher there. Zach Moss hurt his hammy reportedly, per his agent, before his 40-yard dash, ran it anyway, ended up with an official 4.65. The unofficial times were in the 4.7s, and everybody was kind of up in arms about that. But if he was hurt, you know, obviously that's going to affect his time. It's not a disqualifier like say, Elijah Holyfield last year when he ran about a 4.8, but still not great. You wanted to see something more in the 4.6 range for Zach Moss. Salvin Ahmed out of Washington, people thought he was going to crush the 40. He ran a 4.62 official, so that was very surprising. And lastly, Scotty Phillips out of Old Miss really struggled outside of a decent 40. I think he was at about uh, 4.56 in the 40. Tony, did any other running back stand out to you on the negative side? Yeah, I think Darius Anderson, who uh, was uh, announced as Jet Anderson, and someone people expected to run relatively fast. He was anything but a Jet. He was four six one in the forty. Really didn't look, really didn't look very explosive. Eno Benjamin, I think, was slightly disappointing running. Uh, couldn't get under that four five five barrier uh, in the forty. Patrick Taylor, I think, also struggled mid four fives. As I reported uh, with Patrick Taylor, he's got a foot issue. He's going to have foot surgery uh, after the combine. He's going to be out four to six months. So we may not see Patrick Taylor in a football uniform uh, literally until midway through the 2020 season, depending on his rehabilitation. The object here, Patrick uh, Taylor, was, was to come to the combine, get testing scores in, and, and do the interviews, then have the, the surgery on his foot, uh, and, and hopefully get some good testing scores. And really, none of it went well for Patrick Taylor, who I like a lot. Four, five, seven in the 40, 34-inch vertical jump. A broad jump, which was decent, 10 feet, 3 inches, just 15 uh, reps on the bench. They're not great numbers, but, uh, you know, now he's going to be out a while after that foot surgery. Yeah, and it's interesting you mentioned Eno Benjamin because he came in small at the Senior Bowl. People were surprised based on how Arizona State had him listed. Obviously a bit slower than people might've expected, but he ran a very good three cone. He was at 6.97 seconds. Only two running backs were under seven seconds. His vertical jump was, I think, 39 inches, 39 and a half inches. No, it's 39 inches. 39 inches even, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, he showed explosiveness. Yeah. He showed agility, even if the full-on speed wasn't there. But in the end, as we've talked about, he's a guy who runs tough. He's more of an inside runner. And at right. the size that he came in at, it's just not going to work out for him, even if he is explosive and agile, probably just a change of pace guy moving forward. And the irony is, when you look at that three-cone time, when you look at that shuttle, he's not a perimeter runner in college. I mean, he cannot get to the perimeter. He cannot beat linebackers, uh, you know, out to the flanks and turn the corner. He's basically a downhill guy who shows a burst. So 
Listen, he's a good football player. That's the thing with Eno Benjamin. He was graded uh, by some scouts as a second rounder coming into the season. He's not going to be a second rounder. He's probably going to be more like a fourth or fifth rounder. And I think he's just got to find his niche at the next level as a third down back, you know, situational ball carrier who may be able to be a spot starter in certain systems. And he'll, he'll do he'll do well in that role. Now we're going to go back to Thursday's workouts here, and we're going to focus on the wide receivers. First off, we have to mention Denzel Mims. This guy just continues an excellent pre-draft process that started at the Senior Bowl and now continued at the Combine. Shouldn't get out of the second round now after he ran a 4.3840. Great jumps, an insane 6.3 or sorry, 6.66 second three cone nobody else among the receivers was below 6.94 just to show you and put in perspective how great that number is a couple other big receivers who tested well donovan peoples jones and chase claypool peoples jones was a big time recruit never really produced in college but we've discussed the michigan offense at length could have easily held him back from his potential might end up being a better nfl player than he was a college player Claypool really tried to put that tight end talk to bed, although either way, I mean, whether he's a tight end, he's a move guy, or whether he's a receiver, maybe a pig slot, either way, you know, he's going to play a similar role no matter what his listed position is. And Michael Pittman Jr., 4.52 in the 40-yard dash, second best short shuttle time, definitely helped himself. A couple other guys who ran well, Justin Jefferson and Devin Duvernay, that was especially big, I'd say, for Jefferson's stock running in the mid-4-4s in the 40. Tony, who were the most impressive wide receivers to you? Obviously, Denzel Mims, and I, I think you said it perfectly. I mean, Denzel Mims is building a crescendo here. Had a good senior season, was sensational at the senior ball, as we both reported on, and really just blew away expectations here uh, at the Combine. And as I said, leaving the senior ball, scouts were talking about both uh, Van Jefferson of Florida, who didn't run here, and Denzel Mims. If they ran well, they would, would uh, move into the second round. And I think without a doubt, uh, Denzel Mims has secured a spot for himself in the top 60. But Quez Watkins of uh, Southern Miss ran exceedingly well. I think he really uh, beat expectations. He was a surprise entry into the draft. A lot of people didn't think uh, he should have entered the draft. He did. He runs a 4.35, uh, 40, 36-and-a-half-inch vertical jump, 4.36 uh, short shuttle. So, but he's got the speed. You know, he's got the athleticism. It's just a matter of uh, developing him. You know, everyone was all over Henry Ruggs' uh, testing numbers, as well they should be. He had Great testing numbers, but everybody expected uh, Henry Ruggs to run that fast and jump that high because he's known as a great athlete. The question with Henry Ruggs is, you know, is he a great receiver? How much work does he need on, on his uh, at the position? I thought Antonio Gibson, the sometimes uh, running back, sometimes wide receiver, ran exceedingly well. You know, Chase Claypool, who you mentioned from Notre Dame, is kind of running parallel to Miles Boykin from a year ago. Because if you remember, Miles Boykin was a guy that was considered on film as a big, slower possession receiver, just came here to Indianapolis and blew the top off of this workout. You're seeing a lot of the same things from uh, Chase Claypool this year. And you're, you're right what you said. I mean, people were talking about him being a potential tight end or making the move to tight end. You don't got to worry about that anymore. I will say this, speaking about receivers who uh, have been talking about moving to uh, the tight end position, uh, Juwan Johnson of uh, – of Oregon didn't run a great time, but I think he was faster than uh, what I expected. He was, in, I believe, he was in the four five four five eight, uh, which is not a great time by any means at all. But I figured him to be a guy in the mid four sixes. Runs a four five eight. We'll see if he's going to be kept at receiver as a big possession receiver, or if they use him as a move tight end, which I still think he's better off at. 
Uh, but still, a solid time for Juwan Johnson. Not a great time, but much faster than people expect. Yeah, and if Johnson was working out with the tight ends, that 4.58 would have put him second behind only Albert Okwebanon, who ran a 4.49. So obviously, if he's moving to that position, he's going to be a move guy you'd expect him to test out as one of the better athletes. But compare him to, say, someone like Hunter Bryant, who ran a 4.74. And, you know, you have Juwan Johnson, who's a tenth and a half seconds faster and Hunter Bryant's not that much bigger if Juwan Johnson puts on some weight, which, you know, might bump him into the 4-6 if he adds pounds. But even still, keeps hope alive that he can be a receiver and maybe tight end is just like a desperation thing at the end a couple of years into his career if he just needs to hang on. And Juwan Johnson is a much more natural pass catcher uh, than Hunter Bryant. But still, I, I mean, again, it's going to be up to a creative offensive coordinator to find a place for Juwan Johnson. And Juwan Johnson learning to do the little things of improve his route running, which he doesn't run sharp routes. He can't separate through routes. Uh, there's going to have to be decisions made with Juwan Johnson, but with that size, with that athleticism, and with his pass-catching ability, there's a, there's a place for him at the next level. Yeah, and you also mentioned Henry Ruggs, who I didn't mention in kind of the guys who moved up, because as you said, he ran great. He had great jumps, but we expected that. And it's one of those situations where you don't want to double count it. We already know he's fast. We already know he's explosive. If you see that at the combine, you're like, oh, Henry Ruggs, he's going to jump up the boards now. He's really going to improve. No, everyone knew that already about him. And, you know, maybe if he set a record in the 40, like people were talking about, maybe then you look at him as a bit of a riser because he's a bit faster than you might have expected. But the numbers he put up were right at expectations, which it's not a bad thing, but it's also not like Henry Ruggs is coming out of the combine as any sort of real winner. Well, let's compare him to, say, Tristan Wirfs. We know Tristan Wirfs is a sensational offensive tackle and tackle prospect for the next level. He's been a dominant player at his position. And then he came here, and he turned into dominant workout. His testing numbers were incredible, much better than anyone expected. You compare that to, say, Henry Ruggs at receiver, who we all knew was a fantastic athlete, and he turned in dominant testing numbers. But is Henry Ruggs a dominant receiver? I mean, is, is Henry Ruggs uh, a fraction of a football player at his position, wide receiver, compared to, say, what Tristan Wirfs has shown to be at the offensive tackle position for the past couple of years at Iowa? Yeah, I mean, it's a legitimate question, and, and that's a big reason why you just have to make sure that you're calibrating all of this to the expectations coming in. Speaking of which, other speed receivers besides Ruggs, guys who were expected the time very well, really did it. Jalen Rager ran a 4.47. In the 40, not a bad time, but I think a lot of people expected him to be closer to 4-4. He also had a very poor three cone, and he ran some great jumps as well. But it was an up and down kind of workout for him. Brandon Ayuk ran a 4-5 in the 40, but he had great jumps as well, really proved his explosiveness. And in the end on tape, he's not a guy that's going to win as a deep ball, long speed type of guy. So I don't know that he hurt himself. I don't know that Rager hurt himself either, but he certainly didn't help with some of those times. LaVisca Chenault ran a 4-5-9. That was unexpected and very disappointing. He also got hurt. And for a guy with his injury history, running at the combine, getting hurt, not a great sign for him. So he's got to be tumbling a bit. And Quintez Cephas, a guy we've discussed, as a player we like, ran a 4-7-3. We didn't expect a great time from him, but that is a particularly bad time. And I know there was an interview with Jeff Okuda, and they asked him who the toughest receiver he faced during his career was, and he said Quintez Cephas, and he made it a point to say, I don't care if he ran a 4-7-3. So that says something about the player Cephas is on the field, but a 4-7-3 is a very bad time and kind of shows you exactly what he is as a player and his ceiling. 
There are a lot of mixed bag guys, maybe some slight disappointments. No one really flat out bad though, Tony, but did anyone not hit the expectations that you had set for them? Well, you know, with Cephas now, I, I mean, he you, you go come into the combine, you think he's a potential second-day guy. He's a dominant game-controlling receiver who showed some big playability. That 4-7-3 puts him into the late round. You mentioned Chenault. I mean, Chenault's time aside, he did, in fact, you could tell after that first uh, 40 time that he hurt himself and, and he was injured, which is just a continuation of what we've literally seen the past uh, two years. Uh, Aaron Parker of Rhode Island. Uh, I think was really outperformed head and shoulders by his teammate, Isaiah Coulter. And we all were uh, surprised that Isaiah Coulter entered the draft. Parker now, I think, uh, is probably a guy who's going to fall out of the draft. If he gets selected, it's going to be uh, it's going to be very late. I thought uh, Malcolm Perry ran the mid four sixes uh, of Navy. I thought he would have been a little bit faster. Tony Brown of Colorado ran, ran the mid four sixes. I thought he would have been a little bit faster. I think Cody White of uh, Michigan State really hurt himself. He's a taller guy, but he was known at Michigan State as more of a big play type guy. Runs a 4.66 uh, in the 40. People were expecting at least two tenths faster than that, even though he's uh, 217 pounds. Vertical jump of only 35.5 uh, inches. Broad jump of only uh, 10 feet. Short shuttle of uh, 4.52. Why don't I get back to Jalen Rager? And, and I hope people were, have been following the Pro Football Network uh, a combine live tracker because I, I wrote a piece about Rager yesterday and what I was told was he just came to the combine way too muscle bound. His playing weight all season in 2019 was between 192 and 195 pounds. He, when he stepped on the scale, he was 206 pounds and everybody was shocked. No one expected him at that weight. No one thinks that his, that's his playing weight. That's his true weight. It was just, it was just a situation where he may have been lifting too much during uh, combine training, and he got a little bit too big. He got a little bit too muscle-bound. As a, and as I said, watch what happens during the TCU Pro Day. Watch what his weight is when he steps on the scale. If he's more in the mid-190s, 195 pounds, let's see what his 40 time is because that's his true playing weight. That'll be his true 40 time. I was told two weeks ago, Rager ran a 4-3-2 uh, laser time in combine training at about 195 pounds. So – you know, it's uh, people throwing on the uh, people throwing on the dirt on the uh, Jalen Rager's coffin as far as a, being a first round pick. We'll have to wait and see what happens. Uh, TCU Pro Day, which I believe is the end of March. And this kind of continues a trend of what we've been saying is you just have to be careful to take everything in context with what we hear at the combine. Obviously, Jalen Rager was slower than expected, but as Tony said, he weighed in a lot more. He's going to lose weight. He's also going to shed seconds from that 40 time. So it's about expectations and it's about context. And you really have to keep that in mind when watching these events, which is why a lot of people, if this is kind of their introduction to the NFL draft, if they don't follow college football during the year, they might look at some of these numbers and be shocked or wowed. But a lot of people will know that this is the expectation that somebody had. So even a bad time, what might be considered maybe a below average time, might be very good for somebody who is expected to test extremely poorly, and the same thing goes in reverse. You know, that's why you have to be careful. If you are physically able to run at the combine, but you choose not to, uh, and, and then you go to the pro day and you put up a stinker, you got problems. So, you know, Jalen Rager comes to the combine, doesn't run well. He still has his pro day where he can improve. Whereas some of these other guys who chose own choice not to run at the combine and they're just going to run during their pro day, you know, that's a bit of a gamble. 
Now, Tony, flipping back to the offensive line for a quick second here, I know you went out to dinner with Ezra Cleveland. How did that all go, and, and what did you learn? He is a hysterical guy. He, he's a terrific, down-to-earth guy. You, you'd think he's kind of, I don't want to, you know, if you say hickish, it's kind of uh, people seem offended. But you can tell, you know, he lives in a, doesn't live in a big town, but he's a funny guy. He's an astute guy. He's sharp. He was just telling me some funny stories, some which I can tell, some which I can't tell. But he was telling me how during one of the um, during one of the formal interviews that he had with the team, who I'm not going to name, the uh, coaches were screaming at him. Uh, and I'm thinking, going back to Jakai Polite, and I'm saying to myself, well, I hope he didn't react the way Jakai Polite did a year ago, because we all know what that would happen there, and it was a disaster. And, and Ezra was telling me how one of the coaches was screaming at him. Whenever I see your game film, I want to puke. And I said to Ezra, I said, well, what did you do? He said, I just laughed. He said, I just laughed. He said, what else can I do? I thought it was hysterical. Um, so, so it was things like that. He told me a couple of the stories, which were really funny. I know he's a little bit disappointed, as I said earlier, in his bench press. He wanted to get a few more reps. I think he probably thought the, he could have verted slightly better. But he's a, you know, he is a motivated guy. He's got his priorities right. Uh, he went from dinner to the training facility, stretch out a little bit, and then he left for home to go back to Boise this morning. Uh, he's going to be training at Boise. He told me, he said, you know, I left Boise on good terms, so I'm welcome back there to train uh, before my pro day. And we'll see if he does anything um, during his pro day as far as does he bench again, does he do a shuttle. He's going to be doing position drills. I, I've said all along that I thought that he would – really be in the conversation for the first round. If he turned in a good uh, workout here, he absolutely did that. I think he's in the conversation for the first round. I do know that the Cleveland Browns like him a lot. I don't know the Browns would take him in the middle of round one or where they are selecting. They may have to trade down a few slots and then take him. But you know what? Uh, he's one of three pure left tackles uh, in this year's draft. The other two being Andrew Thomas of Georgia and Austin Jackson of USC. And he did what a small school guy or, or a lesser known guy, well, don't want to call Boise State a small school, I apologize, a smaller conference guy and someone who really does not have the headlines of a Jedrick Wills or a, a Tristan Wirfs. He, he did what they had to do. He just came here and, and turned heads and people are now talking about him. I heard Twitter was blowing up about him yesterday as well they should. Absolutely. And I mean, Ezra Cleveland is a guy that a lot of people didn't know about because as you said, plays in a smaller conference, plays on the West Coast. So it's a lot harder for people to see him, assuming, you know, a lot of media members and a lot of the countries on the East Coast, they go to bed early, whatever. We do have some information on another player we've recently spoken with, Fresno State's Michael Walker, kind of looking ahead to his workouts this weekend with all the other defensive players. He had 20 bench reps, a solid showing on the bench as well. And Tony, I know you spoke with him last night as well. Can you fill us in on the latest surrounding Walker? Yeah, I, I was actually walking back to the hotel and he was walking into the uh, convention center to do the bench press. And it's easy to pick out Michael Walker because he's a tall guy and he's got flaming blonde hair. And I went up and introduced myself and he remembered we had, we, we had just had a pleasant exchange. Uh, he told me that he's hoping, he, this is before the bench press, he told me he was hoping for some good marks and he was going to impress some people. He did with that 20 reps on the bench. That's a good number for a uh, linebacker. We'll see what he runs today. Very well-spoken young man, as we uh, as we learned when we did our podcast. Guy who, like Ezra Cleveland, is down to earth, uh, has his priorities straightened. Someone I, I think 
less known to people out there who, uh, you know, really don't follow the draft year round, but someone who I think could surprise on draft day and is definitely going to have a long future at the next level. Now, the Combine isn't just workouts and interviews and medicals. Whenever the whole league gets together, there's tons of buzz, especially around free agency, which is coming up soon. Tony, I know you've heard that the Jets are really hot on the trail for tackle Jack Conklin, the former Tennessee Titan. They do have a backup plan, a guy Joe Douglas is familiar with from his Eagles days in Halapolivati Vite. I probably butchered that name, but it's a butcherable name. Uh, they're also a bit interested in guard Joe Thune, but it may be tough with Tooney's market expected to be pretty hot. What are you hearing about the Jets' search for offensive linemen? Well, it seems to be priority number one, as well it should be. I mean, it's been an area of uh, a sore spot for the team. When Mike, Mike McCagney was here, he really did not address it properly, despite uh, selecting Sam Darnold that early in the draft. As we saw last year, really for the past two years, I, I mean, the offensive line is one of the main reasons uh, that, that's holding this team and the, this offense back. We can go into the coaching. We're not going to do that. But they've got to put good players on the offensive line. I think that is a priority. I do know this. Uh, a GM from another team was a bit concerned when he read my report that the Jets are hot after Jack Conklin and they're going to they're going to go hard to uh, prioritize to sign him because that was another team that uh, was going is going to go after Jack Conklin. I'm sure there are a couple of teams out there. You mentioned Joe Thune. I originally said from the Senior Bowl, uh, I, I reported that uh, Joe Thune was a guy that people thought the Jets would go after. I did say yesterday that people think it's going to be tough for the Jets to uh, to sign him because, number one, his market was hot coming into the combine with the word that the Washington Redskins are going to either franchise Brandon Scherf or sign him to a long-term deal. Once that's done, Dooney's market's going to go through the roof, and I think he's going to sign a contract higher than anybody ever expected. Uh, you know, coming into the season when they graded him as one of the better free agents at guard. And as I said yesterday, talking to people, the Jets are going to have to be creative if they want to sign Joe Thune. And being creative is offering a, a Kirk Cousins type contract where it's a shorter contract, where it's all guaranteed, where it's going to give Thune the ability to make a lot of money now. And then three years down the road, when he's still 30 years old, he can still sign another significantly large contract. So you're going to, the Jets are going to have to be creative uh, to sign a guy like Dooney because of the fact that there are so many teams interested in him and he's going to get a lot of money from teams who will be competing for the playoffs uh, uh, or going deep into the playoffs next year. Now, Tony, obviously you talked about Dooney there and you talked about Conklin, but what about Vitae as a potential backup plan for the Jets? You know, a lot, I spoke with a lot of Eagles people and they like him. They think that he is a guy who could be a very good starter at the next level at either left or right tackle. The thing they told me about Vitae is he's the kind of guy that you're going to have to designate as a starter, and he needs to prepare for a game. If it's a situation where he's got to come off the bench and basically be inserted to the lineup, he struggles. But if it's someone where he can prepare for the game, they feel you know he can be a starter at either left or right tackle spot. Obviously, he's not going to cost as much as a Conklin or a Thune. Uh, and everyone I, thought, I spoke with, said that uh, they think it's a, a solid uh, solid contingency plan. Let me also say what I haven't reported is that the Jets are looking hard at signing a veteran quarterback to back up Sam Darnold. Don't know that they're going to spend a whole lot of money out there. Obviously, I don't think they're going after a Marcus Mariota or James Winston. Uh, but, but if the market for Mariota you know, softens up, they may make some overtures towards him. I don't think he would come to New York. Uh, but look for the Jets in free agency to sign a veteran quarterback. 
that's a great segue here because the quarterback market is going to be pretty interesting this offseason. Tom Brady might be playing elsewhere. Phillip Rivers definitely will be playing elsewhere. The Colts are in play there. Another name popping up, though, as you mentioned, is Marcus Mariota. What's the latest on all of the free agent signal callers, Tony? Let's start with with, uh, Phillip Rivers. I reported the first day of the combine. The word is people think it's going to be a done deal that he ends up where I'm sitting right now in Indianapolis as their quarterback, you know, because they need a quarterback after Andrew Luck's surprise retirement last year. Jacoby Brissett's a solid quarterback, but he's really nothing more than the backup. They think that Phillip Rivers will push them over the top. And the thing with the Colts is they're going to have a huge space under the salary cap. It was told to me anywhere between 80 to $100 million. So they've got the room to sign Phillip Rivers, who they think uh, could push him over the top. And it may be a good thing for Phillip Rivers because he's been in a league all, this, all these years, has never really had a sniff at the uh, Super Bowl. Uh, and this may be his opportunity if they sign Philip Rivers, look for the Indianapolis Colts to then uh, move towards pass rushers uh, in the uh, in the draft. Whether they they get they take them early, but there's going to be they're going to uh, target pass rushers. Tom Brady is the key. Tom Brady is the domino that's going to basically cause a domino effect when he signs, as I said yesterday, because it's going to affect every other big name free agent. People are saying Tennessee overall. The uh, Las Vegas Raiders still remain the number one team in the conversation. That was something I reported back at the Senior Bowl. Uh, it's looking less and less likely that he's going to re-sign with the Patriots, which in my opinion is kind of sad to see. Uh, but it looks like he, he's going to be on his way. If I was a betting man right now, from what I've been hearing literally the past two months, it looks like it's the Las Vegas Raiders. And what did the New England Patriots do? Well, I do know like they, they like Marcus Mariota in the sense that they want these teams that are going to have an open competition for a starting quarterback position like the New England Patriots would if they lose Tom Brady are looking towards Marcus Mariota to bring him in and to compete for a starting job. So it looks like Patriots are interested in a guy like Mariota. They could bring him in to compete with the guy with Jared Stidham, who I know they like, to find out who will be their uh, week one starter if Tom, Tom Brady's playing elsewhere next season. Now, a couple notes before we end the show on players that are working out at the Combine. And Tony alluded to this before when he said more on Jedrick Wills later. But despite working out well, he's actually being moved from tackle boards around the league to some guard boards. Obviously not because of his testing, even though that athleticism would certainly feel well on the move as a guard. But Tony, what's going on with Wills and the shift in uh, his position here? Now, I'm sure you're going to hear more about this as we move towards the draft. But there are a lot of teams who are just concerned that he's not going to be able to mentally absorb a complex uh, blocking scheme. As, as someone said to me yesterday, after quarterback, your offensive tackle, especially your left tackle, has to be the sharpest guy on the field. He's got to be able to read and react and see what's going on. And teams are just concerned that Jedrick Wills is not going to be able to do that on Sunday. He's an explosive player. He's incredibly strong. He is a nasty blocker. But teams just don't think that the mental skills – uh, match up with the physical skills, which is why they're moving him, uh, why a lot of teams have moved him to guard. Now, lastly, you reported earlier on Saturday that App State linebacker Akeem Davis Gaither, guy who stood out very well at the Senior Bowl, is not going to work out in Indy or at all before the draft. He has a stress fracture in his foot that will require surgery. He played through it all season and at the Senior Bowl. Obviously, an impressive feat for a guy playing hurt all year and doing what he did. Tony, what more do you know about the situation? Yeah, I believe it's his right foot. And what happened was Appalachian State knew about the injury. Uh, I, I don't think that they, they conveyed to uh, Davis Gaither the uh, 
the seriousness of the injury. He played with it. Uh, it didn't really bother him that much. It was more of an annoyance. Played with it with the senior ball. And then I'm told, like, right after the senior ball, as he was in combine training, the foot started to hurt him more and more and more. So they took him to a specialist. And the specialist says, you know, no more running, no more working out, no more lateral movement uh, drills, no more short shuttle, no more uh, sideline to sideline drills between the cones like they do with the linebackers here because that was only going to exasperate the situation. He's going to have surgery. He's going to have a screw put in his foot to stabilize the injury. There's going to be no testing for Gaithers Davis, which I know a lot of people, Davis Gaither, I'm sorry, which I know a lot of people are going to be a little bit disappointed in him, but he plays fast on film anyway. You can tell he's a he's terrific pursuit linebacker. It, it's just, it's, uh, you know, it's a disappointing situation. I also think it's a situation where the school probably should have let him know the serious nature of the, or how serious the injury could have become and maybe held him back. But as we've seen time and time again, we talked about this with Lucas Nang and going back of TCU, going back to Jason Verrett. Uh, we've talked about this with the Alabama kids. I think a lot of these schools let these kids play with injuries where they should be on the sidelines rehabbing their injuries because the schools and the coaches want to win now. And the kids' next-level career is kind of put on the back burner, which is, which is a shame. And that's it for the 122nd episode of The Draft Analysts presented by the Believe Sports Podcast Network. Do you believe? If you're enjoying the show, Please subscribe on any of the major podcast platforms and leave us a rating and a review. And feel free to ask us questions on Twitter that we'd be happy to answer on the show. We'll be back again next week to wrap up everything from Indianapolis. But until then, for Tony Pauline, this is Chris Trabody. We'll talk to you soon.